right. Hey, if you have a copy of God's Word, we're going to be in 2 Samuel this morning. 2 Samuel, if you're not sure what that is, it's in the Old Testament, right after 1 Samuel and right before 1 Kings and before Psalms and Proverbs. So uh, we're going to be in 2 Samuel, and today we're going to start in chapter 11. Uh, today's assignment is uh, chapters 11 through 14. And if you haven't been here with us so far this summer, or maybe you're visiting with us this morning, uh, Kevin and I have been tag-teaming the Samuels this summer, and if you've uh, missed some weeks or you haven't been here, you can go uh, catch the podcast, just go to Lakeview College Ministry and, uh, and listen to some of those, it's been really good, just kind of going over it, and as, as we've been going through, we're taking big chunks of passages at a time, uh, trying to just do an overview uh, last week we looked at, if you weren't here last week, last week we looked at uh, the transition of leadership going from King Saul, uh, who was murdered in battle, to King David, who is now the uh, sole ruler uh, and king of Israel. And he started out really good, right? We saw that last week, that uh, the transition was really messy, it was really tragic. Uh, a lot of people taking matters into their own hands, and in so doing, a lot of people died unnecessarily. David's heart being broken, uh, that it was happening the way that it was happening, that Saul's family was being murdered, uh, people were being killed for revenge, uh, the, the, the country was, was split, almost like a civil war going on. Uh, but as we ended last week, what we saw was David being able to unify Israel, uh, to establish Jerusalem now as the, as the capital city. He brought all the tribes together to, to unify him as the king. He got the Ark of the Covenant into the capital city of Jerusalem, and he began to establish them politically. He established them militarily, and he established them spiritually. And today, we're going to pick up there uh, on the next segment of David's life. Now, because of the significance and because of the importance and also what I believe to be the significance and the impact in application for you and for me, a lot of our time is going to be spent on the front end of our passages today. I, I believe David had two moments in his life that were these uh, kind of epic paramount moments that really describe his life. One would be Goliath. David versus Goliath is a very uh, well-known story. Even people who don't know the Bible or follow the Bible have heard of David and Goliath. The analogy uh, is, is far spread and far used for motivational speaking, right? Like slaying your giants and things like that. I believe today is the second uh, pinnacle and paramount moment in David's life, but not just for him but also for us. It's very paramount for us as well. So in 2 Samuel chapters 11 through 14, uh, for all you note takers, today I want us to consider fighting the good fight. Fighting the good fight. And we pick up in chapter 11. The first thing I want us to look at in the first part of chapter 11 is fighting temptation. Fighting temptation in chapter 11. Let's start in, in verse 1. It says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Amorites and they besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Here's, here's a fact that you and I need to know about temptation, is that temptation often comes when we're not where we're supposed to be or we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. That, that's almost the, 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 the fertile soil that the seed of temptation needs to be planted in. 
when we find ourselves not being where we're supposed to be or not doing what we're supposed to be doing. Now, we don't know why. We don't know if, if uh, you know, David uh, had a little bit of an, of an upset stomach. We don't know if David was lazy. You know, we don't, we don't know why David stayed in Jerusalem. But what the Bible does tell us is that in the time when kings what? When kings normally go to war, David stayed back in Jerusalem. He could have had a, a valid reason. We don't know. But what it does set us up to see here is that David wasn't where he was supposed to be doing what he was supposed to be doing. And really, we kind of see this almost as the first segment of David's life where this comes into play, which leads us to another great point, and that is that when you and I get comfortable in life, when you and I get comfortable in the Lord's blessings, we often tend to let down our guard because we feel like everything's going okay, which is also another fertile ground for the seed of temptation to be planted in. So David's at home. And, and look in verse 2. So it says, one evening David got up from his bed. Your translation also may translate at afternoon when he gets up from his nap. He walked around on the roof of the palace. You know, David's taking an afternoon rest, and when he wakes up, you know, I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes when I wake up, my feet don't hit the ground, and I just take off running, okay? It takes a little bit longer to prime my engine and, and to prime the pump to get it cranked, so to speak, if you know what I'm saying. And so David's just kind of walking around on the top of his palace, and you may say, well, that, that seems kind of strange. Well, no, it's, it's really not. So back in that day, right, when they want to establish a palace for the king, uh, more times than not, the palace would be in the highest place in the city and would be the tallest structure in the city for a couple of reasons. The king would want to be able to look out uh, over all uh, that he was in charge of, as well as when the city gets invaded, right, the center structure or the tallest structure would be the hardest to invade. Obviously, you'd want to put your king in the most secure location. And so he's just walking around, kind of looking out over his city. And, and here comes the temptation, right? So he's walking around on the roof of the palace at the end of verse 1, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. We know her to be Bathsheba. Ironically enough, Bathsheba was taking a bath. I guess we should be grateful that showers hadn't been invented back then because shower Sheba doesn't just roll off the tongue like Bathsheba, right? Dad joke, sorry for that. But anyway, so, so here's, here's Bathsheba. She, she's taking a bath, and, and David spots her. Now, you need to understand, right, Bathsheba is not like this temptress, okay? You shouldn't be like, oh, snap, well, she up to something, right? No, bath, Bathsheba isn't out there bathing on the roof of her house because she's trying to allure David or tempt David. Uh, it is very common, right? They didn't have central uh, heating back then, so they didn't have hot water. If you've ever been hit with, with garden hose water, right, with, with no heat filtering through it at all, man, it, it kind of makes you cringe a little bit. It's really cold. So in, it, even in today's time, in a lot of these areas, what they'll do is they'll, they'll put a basin of water on the top of their house, right? Their house would be a place that you could walk up on where you could sit. I mean, we see in Jesus' day uh, that there was a lame man whose friends brought him to the house where Jesus is and, and they went up on the roof and cut a hole in the roof and let their friend down, right? So they would put the basin of water up there so that way the sun could heat the water during the day and then they would oftentimes bathe at night so the water would be kind of warm and on most occasions probably a little bit of privacy as well. So here's Bathsheba and she's, she's bathing on a roof and, and David catches a glimpse of her 
And here's what's important to note is that Bathsheba wasn't doing anything wrong, but what we find is this paramount fork in the road for David. Here's David chilling, doing his thing. As they always say, idle time is the devil's playground. And all of a sudden, here comes temptation, and David finds himself at this paramount fork in the road. He can either choose to A, inquire of this woman and see what's going on, or B, flee from the temptation and walk back into his palace and and do something different. Well, unfortunately, David chose to go down the first path, which ended up being the worst path in order to go down. And it's very important for you and me to understand that that this is how temptation works. It does not let up if we decide to linger instead of flee. Temptation doesn't back down. It's up to us to make the decision to flee because temptation never will. It never will. In that moment, it wasn't up to David to stay put and say, oh, that temptation is going to go away in just a little bit. No, in that moment, it was up to David to make the decision to to do something different, to, to not linger, to not let it take a seed or a root. We are the ones who have to flee because temptation will not. Hold your place here and go to the book of James. It's in the New Testament, Hebrews and James toward, toward the end. James chapter 1. Uh, I love James. Uh, I tell people all the time, man, maybe if you're uh, new in the faith or maybe a little immature in the faith, and you're like, well, okay, so what does the Christian life look like? Uh, James is a book of, of very frank, candid uh, straight talk, if you will, about what our lives look like as followers of Jesus. Uh, be prepared, though, like when you study the book of James, it's going to hurt a little bit. <laughs> he's going he's gonna to hit you with at least something in there, right? Not, not as like condemnation or judgment, just, but just reality. And so James, in chapter 1, he, he kind of gives us the truth about how temptation works for us. James chapter 1, look in, look in verse 14. He says, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. So here's one truth that, that we can see about temptation is, is simply this, that we may not all have the same thing, but we all have something, right? Like, like what you're tempted with and what I'm tempted with may not be the same thing. And, and you can look at other people around you and, and you can see where their struggles are and you can say, man, you know, I, I, don't, really, I don't really struggle with that. But the reality is, is that we do have something that we struggle with because what does James say here in verse 14? He says, when you and I are dragged away and we're enticed by what? By our own evil desires. We all have something that temptation can, can find and, and can lock into. Uh, it's, it's kind of like an illustration of like fishing lures. Now, I, I don't fish, okay? I, uh, fun fact, uh, I've actually hooked more humans than I have fish in my lifetime. So if you want to go fishing, uh, <laughs> Don't call me. All right, so, but, uh, but, but I do have a lot of friends who fish, right? And, and the way that good fishermen work is they take a tackle box. And in that tackle box, they have a variety of bait. They have a variety of lures, right? So they'll roll out to go fishing, and, they, and they'll take one bait, and they'll take one lure, and they'll, they'll toss it in there. And, and, hey, if the fish are biting on that, great, man. Just, you know, stay with what's working. 
But if that doesn't work, they don't just sit there and just keep casting something, right? What's insanity? Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting to have different results. So what do they do? They, they go in the tackle box and they try a different lure. They try a different bait. And if that doesn't work, they go in the tackle box. They try a different lure. They try a different bait. They just keep going until they find what's working. And that, that's exactly how temptation is, right? Like there's so many things that you and I could be tempted with. And the adversary says, I tell you what, let's, let's take a little greed. Let's cast that out there. Let's see if they nibble on that. No, that's not it. Okay, well, let's, let's take a little gossip. Let's, let's toss that out there. Let's see. Does that work? No, okay. Well, let's, let's take a little lying and deception. Let's toss that out there. Let's see if that works. No, no, okay. Well, let's, let's take a little, you know, take your pick. And, and what it shows us is that, that, that we don't all wrestle with the same thing, right? The adversary has a lot of options in his tackle box. But there's something in there that he's going to find us with, and he'll just keep casting as long as we're nibbling. He'll keep casting. And notice the progression here in verse 15. I call it like the downward spiral of sin. He says, so then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. The downward spiral he mentions is that you go from desire to conception to sin to death. Or to look at it for us, we go from thoughts to actions to habits to a hard heart that no longer sees conviction. And we saw that example in Saul's life when we looked at him in 1 Samuel. And so how do you do this? How do you fight temptation when you see these realities? It's, I, my recommendation would be that you attack the root of it, which is the desire. That's where it starts, is with the desire. It's kind of like this. If I have a tree that I need to, to take out of my yard, I could take a chainsaw and cut it off at the base, right at the ground, and I can take that tree and haul it off. But what really needs to be removed are the roots, right? The stump and the root system. Because if, if I don't get rid of that, it's just going to start growing back. And, and uh, cutting off the tree is like, is, like, is like focusing on your habits. You know, I need to stop doing this. I need to stop doing that. But if you don't attack the root, which is the desire, then those habits are just in time. Give it enough time. It'll, it'll start coming back. And so what we do then is when we fight temptation, we see where those desires are, and we begin to work through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit to replace those desires with godly desires and godly things. Now, just like if, I don't know if anybody's in there ever tried to take up a stump or uproot a bush or a tree, it is really, really difficult, <laughs> especially if you're doing it by hand. So what does that also mean for us? Working on replacing those natural fleshly desires with godly desires is going to be a lot of work. It's going to be hard, and it's going to take time. But it's the fight that's worth it. It's the fight that's worth it. Go back to Samuel. I told you, hold your place. Let's go back. So here's David, right? He's in the fork of the road. <clears throat> Here the adversary tosses out the, the temptation of lust that apparently uh, is, is prominent for David. David finds himself at the fork of the road. I can either A, flee, right? I can, I can turn from this temptation and go back in the palace and do something different. Or B, I can inquire. And unfortunately on this day, the adversary's bait was effective. So verse 3, David sent someone to find out about her. Conception led to action in David's life. 
And the person that he sent to inquire about her in chapter in, in verse 3 says, <clears throat> the man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, David knows who Uriah is. Uriah is one of his mighty men, right? He, he's one of the officers in his army. So not only does he find out that she's married, he finds out that she's married to someone who's very loyal to David, to, to, to be an officer in his army. Didn't turn and look away. Even now, he's at another fork in the road. Like now that he inquired, he has another decision that he could make. He could say, okay, all right, I need to let it go. But he doesn't. He doesn't. It's this snowball effect that starts happening in David's life, and it goes from bad to worse. Look in verse 4. Then David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness, and then she went back home. And the woman conceived, and she sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David goes from walking around on his palace, inquiring about this, this lady that he sees, to being on an episode of Mari Povich, right, where he pulls out and he goes, the results are in, and King David, you are the father, right? I mean, he has this one-night stand with this woman that he finds attractive, and he sends her back home, and he thinks, you know, he's, he's gratified the desires of his flesh, and then he can just move on from it, right? He feels like no harm, no foul. You know, it was, it was a one-time thing, and now I can just keep going on. And then weeks later, she sends a note. Well, you're my baby's daddy. All right? You got me pregnant. And now David's like, snap. <laughs> you know, now we, now we done got got. Okay? So he's trying to figure out, well, what do I need to do? So once again, David just keeps rolling downhill, right? He's gone from, from being enticed uh, to now having adultery to now having a, a baby with a woman that's not his wife who's actually married to somebody else that he knows. So David's like, well, uh, I need to do something about this. So David, instead of repenting, David concocts a plan to cover it up. I believe that most of us in this room, we end up lying as a result of self-preservation, right? We, we want to avoid, uh, avoid discipline. We want to avoid uh, getting in trouble. And so David says, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'll send word to Joab, the commander of my army, <clears throat> send Uriah home for a little bit of a battle sabbatical, if you will, and, and Uriah will come home from break, he'll go home to his wife, marital things will happen, right? And then later on, she'll be like, oh, I'm having a baby, and everybody's like, yeah, Uriah, y'all have fun with that, and then David's in the clear. So he thought, so he sends to Joab, says, hey, Uriah, come home, and so Uriah comes home, but David's like, so, how's the battle going? Uriah's like, pretty well. David's like, good, appreciate your service. Why you go home for a couple days, hang out with your wife, and we'll send you back in a little bit. And Uriah's like, okay. So David goes to bed. He wakes up the next day to discover that Uriah didn't go home. Uriah slept at the gate with the other servants. And David's like, well, that's not what I thought would happen. So he brings Uriah in. He's like, bro, I brought you home. You could go to your house. You kind of, you know. Hang out with your wife a little bit. And look in verse 11. Uh, in chapter 11, Uriah said to David, Look, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. He's like, bro, like, like everybody else is, is roughing it for you right now. I'm not going to cheat the system and go to my house. 
Here's a valid point right here I want you to make note of. Uriah was being the man of honor that David should have been. Uriah was being the man of honor that David should have been. So David's like, well, this isn't working. What do you do with somebody who don't, they won't take your, <laughs> they won't take your bait, right? What do you do with a man of integrity that decides to keep his integrity? Well, David's like, all right, I'll tell you what. Conviction's cool at first. Let's see if it wears off. So David's like, well, then I got you, bro. That's cool. Just hang out for a few more days. Kind of hoping that maybe in time, you know, that conviction will wear down a little bit. And Uriah will be like, okay, well, maybe I can at least go home for one night. But he doesn't. He holds to it. He stays at the gate with the servants. So David's like, all right, I got one final shot. So David brings him in. They have this big feast. David gets him drunk, right? He's like, maybe alcohol will lead to a little bit of letting down their guard, so to speak. Even even after David got him drunk, Uriah still didn't go home. So now Uriah, I mean, now David is faced to do something that he has never done before. When you and I get so engulfed in this thing that we just start snowballing, what happens is we'll find ourselves in a place that we start acting in ways and doing things that we never thought we would have done. David finds him in, in a place where he's now decides to do something that he's never done before, and that is murder an innocent man. Murder an innocent man. When you and I try to cover up sin, it, it just makes us look dumb, right? We make decisions that we never would have made otherwise. It, it started, the first reference of that or the first example of that would be in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve weren't supposed to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and it says that they now realize they were naked and they wanted to cover themselves. They're in a garden for crying out loud, okay? They could take any leaf that they want, but they chose fig leaves, to cover themselves. Now, I'm, I'm not a horticulture guy or an agriculture guy, but I asked one one time. I said, I said, why was it so specific about fig leaves? He said, I'll tell you why. Fig leaves have a natural resin on the leaf that rashes and irritates the human skin. He said, if you ever see farmers picking figs, they always wear gloves. He said, so of all the things that they could pick, their goal, their attempt to cover up sin was so bad, they grabbed leaves that rash and irritate the human skin to cover parts of the body that you probably don't want rash and irritated. <laughs> well, there you go, right? You know, a little, little natural consequences taking its course, right? So, so David's like, all right, I've got, I've got to do something. I cannot get caught. I would rather murder a man than confess my sin is where David had gotten to. Now, if you read back, you know, if you don't know much about David or his life, if you read back through 1 Samuel, this should surprise us because David has gotten to a place that we've never seen him be before. And it's also another key point for you and I to understand that every one of us is capable of doing things that we probably wouldn't have found ourselves doing if we keep these things unchecked in our hearts and in our lives. Very, very important to fight temptation. So here's what David does. <clears throat> he sends Uriah back with a note to Joab and says, Joab, I need you to do me something. The next time you're in the, in, in the heat of a battle, I need you to take Uriah and put him on the front line. And then when the battle is going strong, I need you to withdraw all your troops and let Uriah die. Well, I, I don't know. We can speculate, though. Uriah was probably carrying the note that David had written with his death sentence in it. Went back to battle and Uriah reads it. I mean, Joab reads it. I mean, it's the king. You don't, you don't question the king. Joab reads it, so he's like, fine. 
So the next time they're in the heart of battle, he puts Uriah on the front lines. When the battle's getting hot and heavy, he withdraws the troop, and Uriah dies. So Joab takes a messenger and says, I need you to go back and tell King David what had happened and let him know that Uriah, Uriah's a very prominent officer in this, in this army, has died in battle. David, still trying to cover up his sin, decides to play another role and he tries to fake being this sympathetic, heartbroken king. Look in, in verse 25. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. So press the attack against the city and destroy this. Destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. Do you see what David's doing? David's trying to pretend like Look, man, I know it's hard. We lost a mighty man, but it happens, and it's going to be okay. Just go attack the city for revenge. I mean, the dude is like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, just constantly finding himself in a place. If you go back and look at the younger David, who didn't want to raise a hand against the Lord's anointed Saul, if you showed him a glimpse of this David, he probably would have been like, bro, I don't ever want to be there, ever. But here he is. He's in this place. And then I think, can you imagine what's going on with Bathsheba? Right? Look at verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. Here's this woman who was summoned by the king and forced to have sex with him in a one-night stand, gets pregnant, and now her husband was intentionally murdered in battle to where now she's a pregnant widow. It's, it's awful. It's awful. And so here, in verse 27, it says, After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife, and she bore him a son. David brings her in, you know, another what seemingly act of kindness. He had done it earlier in 1 Samuel when Nabal died. He took in his wife Abigail because she was a righteous woman, and he didn't want her to be... Um, you know, alone as a widow, making it appear like he's doing the same thing here, but he's not. And then what I think some of the most tragic statements in all of Scripture, I think the end of verse 27 should be in the, in the list of top 10, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Yeah. So, wow, what an incredible and tragic and sobering statement that is now showing where David is in his life. And so what's the application for you and for me is to understand and recognize that temptation is real for all of us. It's real for all of us. We should decide to fight the fight against temptation because it is the fight that's worth having. To cut it off at the root. And here's another truth that's really important for you and I to understand. As we fight temptation as followers of Jesus Christ, we are going to lose some battles. Nobody's perfect. And it's hard to teach lessons like this because the adversary is going to want you to hear guilt and shame. But God is going to want you to hear grace and forgiveness that we're going to see in just a little bit, okay? We all will lose some battles. But in the end, in the end, in Christ, we win. We win. The Bible says we get to live with him in heaven where there is no more sin and no more temptation. So the first thing, we fight temptation. The second thing is that we find accountability. 
We fight temptation and we find accountability. It's very important, very important. Look in chapter 12, verse 1. So obviously some time has gone by, at least nine months, because we see that uh, Bathsheba got pregnant and she now has the baby. Chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan was the instrument that God used to address David with his sin. Nathan was the prophet. He was the spiritual leader of the time when David reigned a king, much like Samuel was when Saul was the king. And David sends Nathan. Now, I believe, personally, I I hold to the camp that the Lord revealed through divine revelation to Nathan what was going on in David's life because he wanted him to go to David and to talk to him about it. We see that in the spiritual gifts later on in the New Testament with knowledge and discernment. And so Nathan goes to David, and he decides to tell him a little story. So he goes to King David. He's like, hey, so there's, there's a little something I got to tell you about. David's like, okay, what's up? And he goes, well, there's this, this one guy who didn't really have a lot of things. He didn't have a lot of rinses, but one thing he did have was he had this, this one nice little lamb. And that lamb was like the family pet. It ate from his table. It slept in the bed with him. Anybody in here got some dogs or cats like that? You know, yeah, yeah. So, so this little lamb is like his little special treat. And this rich man comes to down who has a ton of lambs, a ton of sheep, and he sees this one poor little guy's lamb, and he decides, that's what I want for dinner. And he takes that guy's lamb, and he cooks it up, and he grills it up, and that's what he has for dinner. What should we do? And David... It says in here that David, verse 5, verse five, burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as sure as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and he had no pity. Nathan goes, well, so see, it's actually you. <laughs> Look at verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, well, you are that man. <laughs> and David's probably like, come again? Say, what? This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. And Nathan goes on to talk to David, right? As a prophet, this is what the word of the Lord says. And and basically, he he says that God is reiterating, like, look at everything I've done for you. If you go back and read, man, God saved David from a lot, a lot of really tough situations. And God blessed David in the midst of his adversity. And God established David and gave him everything that he had to be where he is. And look in verse 9. In chapter 12, it says, So why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, and you took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me, and you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Nathan, through the prompting of the Lord, goes and tells David, Hey, I know what you did. And I'm not cool with it. And because of that, there's going to be a lot of ramifications. From this point on, you're going to struggle. Because you took a torch to the covenant of your family, your family is going to give you trouble for the rest of your life. And that's what he does. That's what he talks to David about and tells him. So the application here then for you and for me, I'm not sure how long David would have gone on. We're going to talk about this in a minute. Put a pin in it. David wasn't cool with what was going on in his heart and his life with the decision that he made. That's one thing that we need to know. And we're going to see that here in just a little bit. So put a pin in that thought. We're not sure how long it would have gone. But God decided 
we need to address the issue at hand. So he sends Nathan. Nathan's the earthly instrument that God sends to address David's sin and to help David recognize that it's not good. Listen, having accountability, please hear me on this, having accountability is so vital in the life of a believer. You really can't do the Christian life without it. We really need it. It's really awkward at times. I'm not going to lie, man. I got some brothers in my life who hold me accountable on things, and it can get really awkward at times. It can get a little tense at times, too, you know? But it's so necessary. I mean, for crying out loud, could you imagine having to go to the king and talk to him about his sin? <laughs> he, he could have you killed. None of my friends could have me killed. Some of them could kill me, like with their bare hands. They're, they're, they're capable of that. I pray they don't. But, but, you know, the thing is, like, David could have, but Nathan went anyway. Here's another thing that's really important. Notice what Nathan does. Nathan goes to him in private. He doesn't go to him in public, right? Because why? The goal of accountability is not embarrassment, right? It's not to belittle somebody. It's not to judge somebody to make yourself look good. That's not the goal of accountability. The goal of accountability should always be repentance and restoration. Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, Verses 1 and 2, he said, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit, right, other people who can, are spiritually mature, should restore that person gently. I think that's a key word in there, gently. Out of love for that person. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Guys, let me tell you right now, if you're fortunate to have people in your life who help hold you accountable in your walk with Jesus... Make sure that you thank them. Make sure you thank them. Because it's probably really awkward for them at times. Make sure you thank them. And if you don't have somebody in your life right now that helps hold you accountable to walk the life that God's called you to walk, pray and ask God to send someone to you to do that. Because God wants that for us. Look at what he says. He says, carry each other's burdens. We're not called to carry our sin and our struggles alone. Why? Because we may not all wrestle with the same thing, but we all wrestle with something. And we're called to do it together. So Nathan does that with David. We see fighting temptation and finding accountability are both crucial for us. But I think the key link to all of it that links together fighting temptation and finding accountability is our third point, which is fostering repentance. Right? So we're fighting temptation we're finding accountability, and the last thing is we're fostering repentance. David now finds himself at another paramount fork in the road. He, he's now been called out on his sin. He has two options. He could kill Nathan to cover up the truth and try to keep hiding it, or he can recognize, I, I need to repent. I need to repent. And... David chooses the latter. Look in chapter 12, verse 13. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He's like, you're right, man. I messed up. So Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. Another incredibly impactful verse in all of Scripture. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. David repents, fostering repentance. And Nathan says, God has forgiven you. Because that's what 1 John tells us, right? 
that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The, the, you know, the judgment of that sin has been forgiven, but the ramifications of those sins we still have to live with a lot of times, right? There's, there's things that happen that, that can't be undone. You know, probably a, a prime example of that would be Jesus on the cross, right? The Gospels tell us that one of the thieves who were being crucified next to Jesus gave his life to Christ while he's on the cross. Well, Jesus didn't say, well, hey, man, since you're now one of my followers, I, you, you don't have to pay the death sentence for whatever crime that you did to earn death row. No, he still stayed on the cross. But now he just died as a believer in Christ. And so he told David, he said, look, unfortunately, the ramifications of your sin are that the, the child that you and Bathsheba had is not going to live. And, and the child became deathly ill. And David fasted for seven days, and the child ended up dying. And, and it reminds us of a startling reality that when you and I sin, it doesn't just affect us. Like we don't sin in a bubble. Our sin always affects other people at various levels. And there's things that we have to live with from that. But we can do it in the grace and forgiveness of the Lord. So our application here with fostering repentance is that even though this was such a tragic situation, it could have been avoided I guess that's probably one of the most startling realities, right? All of this could have easily been avoided, but David chose not to. So we fight temptation, right? But the reality is we lose some of the battles. We find accountability, but the reality is is that sometimes it's not perfect. And so if we foster repentance, that's the key to keep the journey of Christ-likeness going. David wrote two psalms as an expression of repentance. Once you write these down, Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. Go read Psalm 51, and you'll see why I say that I don't think David was kosher with the sin that he had committed against Bathsheba and Uriah. He explains what his soul felt like while he was hiding his sin. But I do want to read Psalm 32. So flip over to Psalm 32 for just a minute. Psalm 32 and, and hear the, the confession of David in his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. And, and I want to make a little point. When you and I find ourselves in a state of fostering repentance and we want to pray to the Lord, sometimes you don't necessarily know what to say. Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 are great passages of Scripture that you can pray to the Lord in, in, a, in a spirit of repentance. And, and I think it'll bless your heart and you'll experience the forgiveness and grace that God wants you to experience. Psalm 32, this is what David writes. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day and night. That's why I believe David wasn't kosher deep in his spirit. That's why I believe the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. He knew. I think he just maybe felt like he had gotten in so deep. He didn't know the, he didn't know the right way out, you know. Verse 4, For day and night your hands were heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. For you are my hiding place, and you will protect me from trouble 
and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not like the horse or the mule would have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and brittle, bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing all you who are upright in spirit. It's powerful stuff, man. Fighting temptation, finding accountability, fostering repentance. Bathsheba, you know, we talked about Bathsheba at the end of chapter 12. What we see is the Lord didn't forget about her, right? She lost her dignity. She lost her husband. She lost this child. But God blessed her again with another child, a son named Solomon. And if you continue reading through Kings, what you find is that Solomon ends up being the most successful king in all of Israel's history and actually the one who built the temple in which the people would come and worship and where the Ark of the Covenant would rest. So God did not forget about Bathsheba in her struggle in the midst of this situation either. Now, if you go and you continue reading, today we're supposed to go through chapter 14. If you continue reading through chapters 13 and 14, what you see is you see that, that the, the Lord's promise to David that he's going to struggle with his family starts. <laughs> this unraveling of his family and this unraveling of the world around him begins to happen. David had multiple wives, therefore he had multiple children. And, and one of his sons, Amnon, uh, found his, his half-sister, Tamar, extremely attractive, and, and he rapes her. And Tamar's brother, Absalom, finds out about it, and he kills Amnon uh, as, as a feat of revenge. And, and this tragedy begins to happen in David's household, and it actually kind of sets up the chapters that, that Kevin will cover next week as you start to see the dominoes start to fall. Uh, around, around King David. Um, but through the midst of it all, he still continued to foster a heart that loved the Lord. So in closing, just the three thoughts to think about today, and then we'll have some time around our table groups to discuss, is understanding the, reala the realization of temptation and making the decision to fight the good fight. Making the decision to fight temptation. The adversary would love for you and for me to either A, not see it as a thing worthy of fighting because it's really not that big a deal, or B, want us to see that it's not a thing of fighting because there's no way we can overcome it. Either one of those are strategies the devil would use to keep us from realizing the importance of fighting temptation in our life. Number two is to also see finding accountability, people around us, brothers and sisters in Christ, who can help us stay the course and, and, and bring us back on track when we fall astray. And then thirdly, just fostering repentance in our hearts, knowing that we're not perfect, but knowing that we have a perfect God who's willing to forgive us and restore us and help us when we call out to him in our time of need. Let me pray. You can spend the last few minutes around in your table groups just talking about some of these things and the application uh, in your lives. Lord, thank you so much. God, thank you that, that we say it over and over again, but God, it really, really is to our benefit that the Bible records every aspect of life. It records the terrible things as well as the wonderful things. We see people's successes, but we also see people's failures. Not so that we can look at them and go, well, hey, no matter how bad I get, I'm not that bad. No, it's to show us that we all have things because we're all sinful. But you're always there to guide us and lead us and forgive us and protect us and use us and restore us. So thank you, Lord, that you've done this. 
this morning in this passage. I pray that this time we have in our table groups, you'd help us foster some discussion that we might foster the reality of these things in our lives. Or it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.